2: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
3: The Black Effect presents Family Therapy and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David.
4: David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me.
3: But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy.
5: This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys.
4: Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday
5: or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast.
4: Gabrielle Blair's original website, Design Mom, was named a Time Magazine Website of the Year. She is the founder of the design conference Alt Summit and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Design Mom. Her newest book is Ejaculate Responsibly, a whole new way to think about abortion.
5: So Gabby, let's dig in a little bit to your story. You call yourself an accidental thought leader. How did this journey begin?
6: Well, I mean, I went to school for graphic design. I, I certainly didn't think of myself as a writer or, or any kind of thought leader that way. Um, I did think of myself as a problem solver. For me, design was always problem solving. And um, so that has ended up affecting how I approach any of these current event topics. But um, basically, I started the blog. And I, I called a design mom and I said the subtitle was the intersection of design and parenting and or maybe it was design and motherhood and I quickly realized I could write about anything at that intersection like it really allowed me to kind of do whatever I wanted which was so great for me because I did want to write about everything I wanted to write about parenting I wanted to write about design I wanted to write about you know the elections or whatever's happening my religion like I wanted to write about all of it and um, it allowed me to so that was great. If there was something that felt very out of reach, I could always just add a question at the end that was like, "How would you talk about this with your children?" You know, and, and that's like now it's parenting. Now, now it's at the intersection. And as blogging changed, remember, 2006 is pre-Pinterest, pre-Instagram, pre-any of that. And a blog post at that time really was on a design blog was as simple as like, "Look at this cute, you know, diaper bag I found," and a link. Like that, that was a blog post and you'd do like three or four a day or you'd be like, here's something cool I found. I mean, it was less work even than an Instagram post. You know, it was just so simple. That's kind of what a blog was. But then blogs changed. We got all these other visual outlets and now we're like writing essays and there were always essay blogs, but design blogs weren't that. And so my posts got longer and longer form as I stuck with this. And eventually I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm like writing a lot. And I still wasn't calling myself a writer. In fact, maybe in the last year, I've called myself a writer a few times, but still in my head was like, well, I'm not a writer, I'm a designer. So that's where, when I talk about being an accidental thought leader, I didn't set out to do this, but the design mom, I mean, for at least a decade, had a very big, steady audience. I could talk about anything. The comment section was amazing. Just like the smartest woman in the world all discussing stuff, having different points of view, but never attacking each other. It would always just be someone saying, well, this has been my experience and like sharing their story. And then someone else might share a totally different story, but it was never like, you're a liar. It was just the most friendly place. It was, it was amazing. And so people reading or watching are being exposed to so many different points of view from so many different people and so many different, you know, from different walks of life. And in this you know, non-threatening way. And it just was really, really wonderful. And so then I started, of course, getting requests on like, hey, can you discuss X topic? Can you discuss this? Because they wanted this discussion, this safe discussion place. And so I would, I would write about whatever was happening in the world. And as my kids were getting older too, we were discussing that stuff at the dinner table anyway. Like they're, the stuff that some of you want to shield your kids from, they're not being shielded from. They're seeing it on TikTok or they're seeing it on Twitter or wherever they are. Like, they're seeing the same headlines that I'm seeing. And so let's talk about it, you know? And and um, so whatever we were talking about at the dinner table, I knew the blog audience would, would want to talk about too. And I could translate a post there.
5: At what point did the blog turn into a business?
6: That was like almost immediate. But the business has changed over the years. But what happened was a few months in, I put on this software called Traxy. This is before Google Analytics. And this was like a little analytics program that showed you how many people are coming to your blog. I was getting three or four comments on a post. So it was like, I was delighted. It was wonderful. But I knew every single person, right, that was writing. So I put Traxy on. And it's blowing my mind. It's like, 99 people have come to your blog today. Or like, I was like, "Hmm." what who are these people like what in the world it was just like shocking to me of course those numbers are so tiny now compared to how big it grew but at the time I was like there's four comments and I know them who are these 99 like what is this It blew my mind and I was so curious and I was like I want them to say hello like I want them to say hello so I invented the blog giveaway Like, I don't know if you guys know that I did the first blog of a comment to win. Yeah. So I, so I was like, what could get them to do this? I knew it was a learned thing. Remember people hadn't done CAPTCHA yet. Like to leave a comment was like a learned skill. Like, where do you go? What do you do? You know, like it felt scary. So I'm like, I need to give them some motivation. So my husband had a high school friend who had just started a shop and this cute little online shop. And I said, Hey, would you send a prize to a winner? She's like, yeah, I'll send these earrings. I'm like, great, super. And so I say, hey, if you leave a comment, you're entered to win. We're going to randomly pick someone and and then Darley Bird's going to send you these earrings. And Darley Bird's the shop. And I got like 75 comments. And my phone is ringing off the hook because all the people that like people I knew in real life are calling me going, who are these people? Who is reading your blog? How did they find it? Because in their minds, it's like they're reading it and they're like neighbors reading it and like my sister's reading it. Cause that's who they're seeing comments from. So the commenters kind of knew each other in real life too. And then all of a sudden that changed. Here's like all these people. And it was really, really fun. Immediately afterwards, I probably received 30 emails from other bloggers saying, Can I copy and paste it? Like, can I can I do the same? Give it like, yeah, I'm sure, whatever. And like So that is when I was like, oh, this is a business. When I realized like, oh, there's people here. Something's happening here. Okay, how do I do this? And so then I started selling little ads on my site. And then eventually I got signed with um, Federated Media, which is defunct now, but made a lot of careers. That's when I signed with them. That was 2010. So that was already a lot of years. That's when I was getting a full-time income from blogging. But until then I was just like scrambling, scrambling, scrambling. I started Alt Summit that year like i was like using my blogging connections to get speakers for alt summit like once i saw that Traxy data of like there's like 100 people here i was like oh something's going on and then, of course that just kept growing and growing
5: when you first started alt summit what was the idea behind alt summit
6: and how do you just start a conference how do you make it happen for a couple years i'd gone to blog her and that was like the conference at the time really loved it had so much fun went to chicago but every class I went to was about writing. It was like writers, which was great. And a lot of mom, you know, it was like the mom blog era. So a lot of mom writers, which, you know, I'm, a, I'm my blog's called Design Mom, so I'm fitting right in, except that I'm more than reading these mom blogs. I was reading design blogs. I was reading Design Sponge and Oh Joy and Apartment Therapy, and none of them had kids yet, you know, and, and they certainly weren't doing sort of parenting kind of blogs and none of them were at these conferences and we weren't talking about any of the topics that affected design bloggers. And I have a sister, Jordan Fernie, who had started a design blog. She also didn't have kids yet. I had a sister-in-law, Liz Stanley, who started to say yes, who also didn't have kids yet. And so they're part of the design blog world. And we were all on this trip and I was just telling them like, I love going to these conferences. It's so fun. Um, it's so fun because you're like, you know, you work so isolated as a as a blogger, and now a content creator, whatever we're calling ourselves these days. And it's so fun to just go like talk shop in person with like people that get it, right? I, like I love these conferences. And I was saying, but I wish like the design bloggers were there. That's who I want to meet. That's who I want to hear from. I want to learn what they're what they're doing. So then my sister, Sarah, who's not a blogger, but who has done a lot of event stuff. She's, her husband's a politician at the time. And she had studied political science as well, and had done just like a lot of political events. And she was like, well, let's do a design blog conference. I'll do the organization part. And like, you know, all the bloggers and you can get them all there. And so she did all the event organization. We held it in Salt Lake City, which is where she was connected to. And we called it Altitude Design Summit because it was in the mountains. And then it got shortened to Alt Summit very quickly. And then the first panel, the opening panel was Maxwell from Apartment Therapy grace bonnie from design spot design sponge heather armstrong of deuce who was both mommy blogger but also this photographer designer and then um gene of not cop which maybe you don't know as well but it was a big big deal at the time anyway so this is the opening panel of the conference and it was like oh this is real this is like these are the top names like and the sponsors saw it and were like oh this is a thing like this is i mean this is a thing right so that first year, though, I mean, sponsors, like, who did we have? I don't, don't even remember. Like, it was local friends or whatever. It was just, like, trying to pull this together. But, like, you had this this opening panel that you could point to that were, like, these are the big names. And it was, like, oh, the next year it was so much easier to sell tickets, so much easier to get sponsorships, et cetera. But basically, if you have an event planning background or some experience there, that's what you need to you know, talk to a hotel, talk to venues, that kind of stuff. Make sure, you know, how much food do you need to have? You know, all that kind of stuff. And then for the content, that was my area. Like, what are we talking about? What are the panels about? What's happening there? So, I mean, yes, go start a conference. I have to tell you another story of the first the first Alt Summit. One of the attendees is named, was named Ben Silberman. He was just an attendee. He had just signed up, heard about it and signed up. And he was walking around trying to get people to look at his his little website he created. It's a little beta version to kind of check it out. And everyone was, you know, super friendly and we're all checking it out. And one of the people he really connected with was Victoria Smith, who's SF Girl by the Bay, big, big design blogger. And they ended up like flying back to the Bay Area at the same time. And the little site that Ben was showing everyone was Pinterest. And the next year he came and he was a panelist this time. By then, like the design world had found Pinterest and was like, this is amazing. It's exactly what we needed. This is just like so perfect. We can bookmark all our visuals. And the next year, the third year, he came and he's the keynote. Like Pinterest had just like taken off in a huge way. And one of his quotes that we've used um, because we love it so much is he says, all summit is the the soil that Pinterest grew out of. And it is. Like he came and he found exactly who he needed to find. He found all the coolest design bloggers who were like so visual and cool and could just pin the most amazing content. And it really grew Pinterest in a wonderful way. And now a quick break.
0: My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like the more MQLs, the better over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day.
1: We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family
3: Therapy.
4: My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want
0: and, and work towards it.
3: i never seen a man How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. Emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry, as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: So your new book is called Ejaculate Responsibly. And it started out as a Twitter thread. Did you really think out the thread? Or did you write it as you went? Or like, how did it unfold? Because this Twitter thread, for people who don't know, had millions and millions of interactions over a course of years. Like, I don't think there's been a day where that thread isn't still making magic on Twitter.
6: Still, yeah, I was just on Twitter today. It's still doing stuff on Twitter today. Yeah, it's been, so it was September 2018 and we're in November 2022. So it's, uh, yeah, four years plus now. It's It's been active. So I wrote out my thoughts or sort of an essay form of that maybe six months before the actual thread. I'd never written a Twitter thread before and it's different. You have to like break it up into these very specific lengths. And so I did rewrite it kind of for Twitter that day that I published it. But I mean, Twitter is funny. Like I've been on it longer than any other social media. I think I got on in 2008, but then I didn't use it for years or like would barely use it. I, if I had like a, sponsored post I'd put it on Twitter or something like that but I wasn't really actively using it and then during 2015 when a lot of us were paying attention to it because of the election and a lot was happening on Twitter I got back on and really just started observing I wasn't creating content I was just observing and doing, doing a lot of retweeting which I still is probably the main thing I do and realized it was like a whole different world than the Twitter I used to know And there was a different culture there now. And I really loved it. I was super into it. So I decided to try this as a thread. But threads are supposed to be pretty short. I mean, like, if you need to write an essay, go, like, write a blog post or something. And this thread that I wrote, my very first one is 63 tweets, which is just so bad form. It's just, like, not... I mean, you guys know. You're on Twitter. Like, at 25... It makes you like tweet it and then you can add more. But like 25 is sort of like the natural limit. And here it was 63. So that's just super obnoxious. I mean, I have an ego for sure. And I was very nervous that not that I was going to get yelled at because I've been yelled at online before, but that I was going to be ashamed because I was like putting myself out there with 63 tweets. And like, what if no one even looked at it? Like, what if it's just like got no reaction? That I was like super worried about. So I was like mentally trying to add up like how fast can I delete 63 tweets one at a time and and get rid of this thread if I need to (laughs) pretend it never happened. You said you'd written
4: out your thoughts about abortion six months before.
6: I don't remember exactly what it was, but I had looked up abortion statistics, like how many abortions are happening each year. So I must have read an article, maybe seen something on Twitter that drove me to do that. So I was looking it up. I mean, maybe I was just arguing with someone. I don't know. And I remember seeing the number, and it was higher than I thought it was. Like, I don't know what number was in my head. It's not like there was one, but I was like, oh, that's that's more abortions than I would have guessed if I had to just, like, guess. And so then I started trying to problem solve that. Like, well, why is that number so high? Because, of course, I'm thinking you know, there's birth control options out there. And it's not like, I mean, I know women don't even like to go get pap smears. We have to sort of like psychologically prepare for any kind of gynecological visit. We're not just like casually heading out over to get an abortion. Like that's not a thing. So then I was like, so what's happening there? And then it was just like this click. I was like, oh, I know why people wouldn't necessarily be on birth control because I have used every form of birth control. And they have worked. I got to choose when I had my babies, which is amazing. And that's exactly what what we want for people. But I did not like the side effects. I did not enjoy them. That's why I've tried every kind, like trying to troubleshoot, trying to find something. And beyond the side effects, I found the maintenance so challenging as I had all these little kids. So, you know, you've just had a baby, you need to get birth control, you got to go back to the doctor, get this appointment, have another exam, then again, stand in line for a prescription, or maybe eventually I got, could get it mailed, you know, but you just had to set that up. And then by the time you get it, it still doesn't, it doesn't even take effect. I'm thinking of the pill, it doesn't even take effect for about a week. And if you forget, or you mess up, you feel terrified, like, oh, crap, what did I do? You know, how do I correct this? You're like online trying to figure out if, if it's Okay. Or if it's like a shot, which I've also done, you're having to go back every few months to get a new shot and like, remember when that is. And are you getting childcare for that? Are you taking off work for that? You know, like, are you having to make any other arrangements? It's just was, I found it really, really challenging. And I was, I was in a place where I had insurance, right? Like I I have the basics covered. It's not like I was even in a, I mean, there, there are times where it would be even harder than when I had it. And I still found it really challenging. So for me, that's where I start going, oh, it's really hard. We make birth control so hard for women. And then, of course, my mind went to, well, you know, women aren't the only ones here. Men, men are also involved in this equation. You know, what's happening there? And that's when I started thinking about condoms and vasectomies, but specifically condoms, and that they're kind of the opposite of women's birth control, meaning they're easily accessible. No doctor's appointment required. They're super affordable. You can usually get them free. In fact, every state has a free condom program. You don't need to take them if, when you're not having sex. You don't need to use a condom when you're not having sex, which for women's birth control, you do have to maintain every day. They're available 24-7. They work instantly. They're like everything women's birth control isn't. And then no side effects, zero side effects. And if you do need to troubleshoot, like say you have a latex allergy, you don't need to go to the doctor for that. You can just troubleshoot. You can just get another brand. And as all of this was like sorting out in my head, I'm like, I was getting angry. (laughs) Anyway, And I'm like, I'm writing all this down. I'm just gonna write all this down. I didn't know it would be necessarily new ideas to anyone. Maybe, maybe there were already essays all about this. I don't know. I was just sort of writing it down for me to kind of get out my frustration on, whoa, here's like the easiest birth control in the world. And yet, we've decided as a culture, well, we can't ask men to wear condoms. You know, that's just too much to ask. But we're going to ask women to do all this headache work, all these side effects, all this stuff. And we don't hesitate to do that. We start girls on birth control is, you know, as soon as they hit puberty in many cases, and they're on it for decades. And we don't hesitate to do that. But we can't ask a man to wear a condom for a few minutes. Like, that made me angry. And then I wrote it all down. And then I wasn't sure where to share it because I've been doing design mom forever. And it was like, is it a design mom post? I I just wasn't sure where to put it. And then decided Twitter and rewrote it as a Twitter thread.
4: You're perhaps one of the most unlikely people to write your book, ejaculate responsibly. And one of the reasons people might think you are unlikely is because you're Mormon. How has this book, if at all, impacted your relationship with the church with your friends in the church with your family
6: so i think i have to start with a couple things one is for sure there's assumptions about mormons that i'm very well aware of you're going to assume they're going to be a republican you're going to assume they're going to be anti-abortion you're going to assume they probably don't swear certainly they don't drink alcohol they don't drink coffee or tea like these are just assumptions and a lot of them are going to be safe assumptions i mean utah is mostly republican utah the seat of mormonism um you can only buy alcohol in certain stores and in certain hours on certain days. I mean, like that, some of this stuff is real. But you also have to remember there are, I think, at last count, 12 million, maybe 16 million more. Like there's a lot of Mormons in the world. So everyone's not going to be the same if you have that many people. And there are, shockingly, way more Democrats in Utah than anyone would guess, you know, and, and more as the years go by, too. Um, the younger generations are skewing, of course, less and less conservative, as we know. So there are, are plenty of people in the Mormon church that feel that I'm Mormoning incorrectly and are happy to yell at me about that. But I I get just as many like thank you. I I'm so grateful that there's someone in my community that's saying these things. It makes me feel more at home. So I'm going to tell a story about um, the newspaper coverage of the book in Utah, which I think is very illustrative. Um, so there's two major newspapers in Utah. One's called the Salt Lake Tribune and one's called the Deseret News. The Deseret News is owned by the Mormon Church. So both of them have talked about the book. The Salt Lake Tribune had invited me onto their podcast and done some great articles. And then someone told me, hey, I saw the book in Deseret News. I was like, Amazing because I didn't even I didn't expect the church to cover it at all. And I should say the church owned newspaper. It's not like the church is writing all the articles, but they just, they but they own the newspaper. Anyway, so I'm looking it up and I don't see the title and I realize they've written a lovely positive review but haven't used the title. It was just like a little bit too much. (laughs) So they link to the book. They they mention, they say, oh, and with this memorable title, or they say something about the title, but they don't actually say, ejaculate responsibly. I thought, oh yeah, that's about right. Like there's, I mean, some Mormons are fine with it and others are just like, it's just a little too uncomfortable for them. So that's fine. But it has not risked my relationships and certainly in my own family. And among my siblings, I'm one of eight. I am the only practicing Mormon at this point. Five, six years ago, everyone was practicing, but they've left the church. And so, so they're not troubled by it at all. But honestly, even when a Mormon wants to argue with me about it, I'll say, or like sometimes they'll get on Twitter and say, you should be excommunicated. Or, you know, like they love to threaten excommunication. But anyway, um, I'll say, super, please point out in the thread what is against Mormon doctrine. Just find me the tweet find me the idea, because there's nothing there. It's actually a very Mormon idea that men should act responsibly. Like, there's nothing weird about that in our religion.
5: You had mentioned that one of the unfortunate byproducts of writing this book is that your kids get confronted about it and are asked to sort of defend the premise of the book. How has that unfolded?
6: It's a funny thing. It comes when I don't expect it. Um, And I'll I only hear about it after the fact, after my kids have already dealt with it, right? I mean, obviously, if I'm there, it's it's not happening. It, it'll be like a cousin or a, you know, cousin-in-law or it'll be uh, someone on campus because I, you know, these are older kids that are going to school and going to college that clearly has thought about it, has read it, but doesn't dare get on Twitter to actually engage with me because like I'm there and I'm pretty easy to get a hold of, you know? And so feel more comfortable attacking, you know, a teenager that's at college or whatever, and, you know, making them defend it. And I feel like the ones that I know in real life, I don't want to embarrass. So I'm not going to name names, but it is frustrating to me, like, my kids didn't write this. And they're great at defending it, but they didn't write this. And I'm very accessible. So if you're arguing with my kids instead of me, that's just because you're scared of me.
5: But Gabby, I mean, the other side of this—you have six kids, so I would imagine that they each have a very different relationship with your work than each other, right? I'm sure they don't all react the same. How have you managed that?
6: The younger kids—they've been in France for three years and haven't had to really face this, right? I mean, I wrote the thread four years ago, and they were young enough that it didn't matter that year in California where where it was out. Um, so it's really the older kids have had to face it, and they get to decide. My son, Ralph, he sometimes gets really irritated when he sees people attacking me on Twitter. Like he'll get more stressed out about it than I do necessarily. And so he'll get on and he might argue with people. My daughter, Maude, who is so good at Twitter and like, like loves, like she always makes me laugh, but I never see her argue with someone on Twitter. And I would never expect that ever. Like, so it's kind of like, what's your personality? Like, I enjoy arguing with people on Twitter. It's something I found out. Like, oh, I actually, I like this. This is fun. Um, but, um, but I don't expect that of my kids. And if and when Ralph does, I don't think he enjoys it. I think he is just feels compelled to defend his mom. And I'll have to say, you are welcome to do this if you're having fun. But please, I I'm fine. Like, do not like you have to do this. I really am. I'm safe. You know, like it's all good. It's the same with my siblings, though. Like, I have a brother named Jared. He will sometimes get on. On Twitter and yell at people like on my behalf, like he'll stress him out too. like his sister's being attacked. But my other siblings don't necessarily care if they do notice I haven't seen him on, on on Twitter. So it's more just like, what's your personality? How do you want to react to it?
4: Many people would think it was impossible to even consider moving across the world with six kids. Why did you think it was possible?
6: We moved to New York with two kids had three more kids in New York. And then we did our first big move to Colorado from New York after eight years there. And I guess in my head, a move is a move is a move. You know, like I had moved across town before. I'm thinking in New York, you know, moving from one apartment to another. I, I'd i moved across the country. They were both really, really hard. Like, it's just really hard to do anything with little kids. So I knew I wanted a big family. I had come from a big family. My husband's also from a big family. We're, we're both one of eight. I wanted a big family, but I didn't want that to hold me back. Like, we didn't hesitate moving to New York when we had these two little kids and I was like eight months pregnant. I was like, people do things with kids. People have kids all over the world. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Like, I just didn't want it to hold me back and was, you know, was willing to do the work to move across the country or move across the world or whatever it might be. And it is so different. It's so funny. Like, So our youngest was nine months old when we moved to France the first time. And then when we moved to France this time, our youngest was nine years old. You know, like it was a completely different, different thing. And and I look back at I like I we took so many trips, we did so much, and these kids were little. And I'm like, what were we thinking? <laughs> That's that was insane. But I wanted to travel, I wanted to see Rome, I wanted to see Norway, like and I've got all these kids, so I guess we're taking the kids to Norway. I mean, I don't know. Like, I just I feel like I was wanting to do what I wanted to do, and we can fit family life around that and not just me I mean the family wants to do what the family wants to do and we're, we're all working around that but I don't know I just that I knew it was hard to do that stuff but it was like well it's hard to be home with the kids too it's just hard to have kids so should we have a hard time in New York should we have a hard time in Norway should we have a hard time in front? where do we want to have a hard time with the kids today and now a quick break
7: Emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Dablukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a
3: million bucks. With zero qualifications.
0: She had a Harvard plaque
5: So Gabby, along this journey you've had, and it really has been quite a journey, and I think in many ways your story is so different than many of our other guests because your personal and professional lives are so intertwined and they've always been so intertwined. A big part of that or a main character in this has been your husband. I have seen him at your conferences.
6: He's incredibly supportive. What has your relationship been like? I mean, I love being married. He's, you know, he's my favorite person in the world for sure. Uh, We've never really known adult life without each other, right? Like, so I was 21 and he was 22 when we got married, which is very young. I was 23 when we had our first baby. He was 24. We haven't really known adult life without kids. We haven't really known adult life without each other. And so I don't really have anything to compare it to, right? Like, I mean, I don't, I didn't have a... The twenties that you see on TV, where you're like, you know, falling in love and breaking up and you know moving to the city and doing whatever. Like, we moved to the city in our twenties. We moved to New York, but we had two kids and a third was born like a couple weeks later. Like, like it was just like a different world. But he's been amazing. So really early on, like really early on in our marriage, I mean, with I mean, in our parenthood, I should say, we had this idea. Like, certainly the culture in Utah was like the mom stays home, and I was like, okay, so. I'm supposed to stay home with the kids. And I'm like, miserable, just miserable. And I remember saying to him, hey, you know when you watch the kids and you're like so worn out at it and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so worn out. I'm so glad for a break when it's done. Yeah, I feel like that too, all the time, all day. It doesn't matter that I'm the mom. It's just as hard for me, I promise. Like, I, it's so hard. And he just like, got it. He didn't try and argue or whatever. He's like, oh, okay. Like it hadn't occurred to him someone told them because how I mean, it hadn't occurred to me either. And we started splitting the day. So we were both entrepreneurs. And I would do I mean, like I had a little design business, and he had the little language learning business. And I would work from like nine to one. And then we'd have lunch. And then he'd work from like two to six or some version of that. And we just started splitting the day and just like, we couldn't afford childcare. So we were, you know, we'd take care of the kids on our time off. And it was only, we'd only get these concentrated few hours and then we could always try and work again in in the evening if the kids were asleep, you know, that kind of thing. But we just said, okay, we're just going to share this. And that was great. And then there were times where we couldn't do that. Like he went back to school. He got two masters and a PhD at Columbia. This was like intense stuff. When we're living in New York, we needed money. I'm, I'm, you know, working full time. I mean, there've been times where we couldn't split the day the way we wanted to, but we were always aiming for that. And as soon as we could, we'd get back there. And so when he finished his PhD, I had started design mom, like we, you know, we both kind of got to this good place at the same time. And since then, we have both worked at home, and just been able to share everything, you know, so this is before like remote work, he got hired, when we were in New York, he got hired by a DC company to work remotely, and then we worked for them in Colorado, worked for them in France, and then I had again started Design Mom and it was taking off. So we had some years where we couldn't share it, but then as soon as we could again, we started sharing it and we've just shared parenting and the workload since then. I know not everyone can do it. We were always aiming for that like once we understood like that's what we needed, like that's what we were aiming for. And when anyone asked me for advice on like how to manage things, what saved us is flexible schedules, meaning like we didn't have to be in an office from eight to five or, or any version of that. I had so much work. He had so much work, but we could fit it in where we could fit it in. So if someone needed to get to the school for a play or get to a doctor's appointment for something like we never had to take off work, we never had to get permission. That is huge And sometimes in a couple, you maybe have one of those and that's, that's amazing. If you can get two of them, I mean, that's amazing. And I know so many people went to work remotely during the pandemic and I know that's changing and people are being drawn back, but I just want to tell people like, just demand it if you can, especially when the kids are little, especially when the kids are like those years when the kids are little, if you have flexible schedules, you really can maintain or even grow a career if you have a truly flexible schedule. If you don't, it's impossible. Maintenance is the best I feel like you can do if you do not have a flexible schedule. So if you've got a work situation where it would work remotely in any way, try to like prove it, demand it, showcase how it's better or whatever, because it just makes all the difference. At least for me, it did. And to have both of us, that's huge. But Ben is amazing. He's been super supportive. Um, He's really great. He'll, he'll make, like today he came down, he's like, I made a testimonial about vasectomies, because it's Vasectomy, World Vasectomy Day. And so he posts this like, testimonial about how awesome his vasectomy was, and like how fast he healed and how great it's been. And I mean, he's just the best. And he like gets it. And he's, he's just such a good cheerleader for what I'm working on. And I certainly couldn't have had a big family without a, a partner that was interested in that. But he's just been, he just gets it. And he, he, understands what the work of parenting is like he gets it i don't have to explain it to him i don't know he's he's terrific and i'm sure part of that is like we're home all the time we've been home all the time he can see what parenting is and i should also be clear like we do lots of gendered stuff he always gets the gas i I end up doing the laundry like there's stuff we do that's gendered i don't mean to say we split everything like exactly 50-50. But in general, the workload of the house, the workload of parenting, we've just always shared it. Gabby, you're such a creative person and you
5: must always kind of be thinking about what's next. Like what is your next creative pursuit?
6: Ben and I actually signed a contract for a parenting book even before the abortion book. And then the abortion book sort of like it felt the more timely thing. It's with the same publisher. And they're like, actually, let's do the abortion book first because it's just like, well you have seen the the news anyway so so we'd like to do the parenting book I'm also we're like still deep in renovations not in the house we're living in but the house in our backyard and then there's like a little cottage so that's really fun for us it's very creative work I love it and then I keep feeling like so in college when I studied graphic design my goal was to be a textile designer I had this like I want to like walk into a stranger's house someday and like Hey, I designed, you know, those curtains or those sheets or I don't know, like I loved that whole idea. And I love textiles and I loved all of it. And I have never done that. I mean, like my senior project was like, here's my collection of fabrics. And then I have never actually done. So I'm like. That would be a creative pursuit I would love to do, which has nothing to do with anything else here. But And then I I feel like I pitch a new book just casually to my publisher, like, what if we need more on menopause? How about a book of, you know, like, or, hey, how about these essays or Twitter's going away? Could I compile all the threads I've written into a book? I don't know. I'm I'm constantly writing. um, But yeah, when I think of creative pursuits, it's funny because my mind doesn't go to writing necessarily. It always goes to like design stuff.
5: Amy, do you want to go to the speed round now? Yes.
4: Okay. Gabby, what podcast are you listening to other than ours, of course?
6: Of course I listen to yours. I really love maintenance phase and anything Michael Hobbs does. I love Michael Hobbs. What is your morning routine? Okay. So we get up, drive the kids to school if it's cold. Sometimes they want to walk. And then I often go do something renovation-y in the morning, like before I've showered, put on my work, do something like dusty and gross, then take my shower, and then... um, Then I'm on my laptop for too many hours and phone. and Anyway, I'm long past morning now. Gabby, you travel
4: a lot. What do you do when you're on a plane?
6: I will try to sleep as much as I can. And if not that, I play a lot of Sudoku or like... Solitaire, you know, just like the dumbest games. (laughs) Who leaves you starstruck? I still adore Martha Stewart, which I know, like, we don't see her in the news as much. And I've gotten to meet her. I've gotten to interview her. I think she's so freaking brilliant. She's just amazing. I love her so much. Where will you go on
4: your next vacation?
6: I want to go back to Italy. Like, there's just... I've been a lot of times, but... There's always more, and I love it. And guys, the food and the gelato, and I, I mean, it's just, come on. like It's just never a bad idea. What's your favorite beverage? Um, I love root beer, I'm thinking of it because I miss it, I can't get it here. Is that the most Mormon answer? I love root beer, <laughs> and I want like a root beer float. Like, that's what I want. Like, oh, it's the best. <laughs> when I can't have root beer, it, yeah, if I need a fancier drink, I'll do lime and bitters, which someone taught me when we were in Australia. And I love it so much. It was like, it sounds fancy, but it's safe safe for non-drinkers. Thank you so much, Gabby. Thank you. So fun to see your faces. So fun to talk to you. Miss being with you in person.
5: Amy, that was so much fun to have Gabby on. I mean, we both have our own individual friendships with her and I think she's inspired both of us in different ways. And I don't know, there's just something so energizing about listening to her.
4: She is one of the most magical people I've ever met. I think it's hard to describe, but the first time you're in a room with Gabby, she's warm, she's real, and she's curious. And I think, you know, that's the thing about Gabby is she's always learning. Like in some ways I'm surprised she wrote this wildly global viral thread about abortion. And then in other ways, I am completely not surprised (laughs) that she did this because she's just always trying new things and voicing her opinion. And I hope it gives other women out there the conviction to try things and to try them publicly.
5: Well, one of the special things about Gabby is her confidence. I mean, if every woman had the confidence Gabby has, the world would be an entirely different place. That's right. I also think, Amy, what's so wild is like she didn't have a wild sex life that led to this book, right? Like she's kind of writing the book for something she hasn't even experienced and it almost lends kind of more credibility, whereas normally you would think that lends less credibility. It almost makes her more of an authority. There's just – there's something about her that makes you stop and listen And I know you you recently, when you you worked with her recently on the last Alt Summit, and you said something to me about how calm she is no matter what is going
4: on. She is always calm. Like, I'm over here, like, in the corner freaking out about something. I mean, we're putting on a 1,000-person conference in New York. And Gabby's just like, it's fine. It's okay. And always. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just – it was very remarkable. But it is interesting, Sam. Like, no, she didn't have this wild sex life, but the concerns about contraception – And, like, our ability to decide when we want to have children remain with us long after we become mothers. And I think, like, that's one of the reasons I love her thread so much. And even in talking to her today about it, it's like dealing with birth control is something we deal with until we can't bear children anymore, right? Unless our partner has a vasectomy or, you know, like, and I feel like this abortion debate gets cabined into this idea that it isn't something that impacts mothers, But it impacts mothers so much.
5: But see, Aime, this is the thing, right? And this is what was interesting and tricky about this interview is like we could have done the entire interview talking about the book, right? Because it is so controversial. There's so much to say around it. But really, the next time we talk to Gabby, it definitely won't be on this topic because she goes from topic to topic and she's just as passionate and curious about each one. And I think that's why I love this interview so much too because we really got to the heart of her story and – you know, most of her interviews are about the topics. And I think one of the really fascinating things is just how she arrived here.
4: Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things when I think about Gabby that I always think is that I hope when my four daughters grow up, they have the confidence and warmth that she has. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you'd leave a review
5: wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast.
4: What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com.
5: Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, and our male perspective, Lou Burns.